the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. The new book, by the way, published by Harvest House, entitled Finding Hope in Times of Grief, available at Christian bookstores throughout the San Francisco Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. Its authors, Preston and Glenda Parrish, with us today, talking about their experience um, recently of having lost their 25-year-old son and uh, Preston's father all within the same week. One of the issues when we go through an experience like this, um, Preston, uh, there's oftentimes, I think, the sense of pressure, be it real or imagined, to kind of get back to business as usual, get back to normal. And so we rush to go back to work, uh, kind of resume our, our daily routines, and I think in the process fail to take the time to really take care of ourselves and, and, and fully recognize this is a significant loss. This is a loss of an, you know, a, an important person in my life, as you suggested earlier, like having a, an appendage that has, has been amputated and, and to try and ignore it or, or pretend as if we're over it and we're back to life again as a sign of strength, which I would imagine in some cases is actually more weakness than anything else. Well, that's right, Craig, and our society does, sadly, encourage people to try to ignore it, suck it up, and go on, but obviously we are human beings. God has made us with emotions. We do have feelings, and we must face them and deal with them, and that is a part of what grief involves. Uh, Grief and depression are actually fairly closely related if you read literature on clinical psychology, uh, persistence of sad or anxious or empty feelings, feelings of hopelessness and pessimism, a sense of irritability, restlessness, of being slowed down, fatigue or loss of energy, uh, feelings of worthlessness or guilt or fear, uh, increase or loss of appetite, difficulty concentrating. You mentioned that earlier, remembering details, uh, making decisions, uh, not sleeping or sleeping too much. Uh, loss of interest in activities that used to be pleasurable. All of these symptoms go with grief. Now, if they occur soon after the loss of a loved one, uh, they are not necessarily clinical depression. They are just grief. And so there's no way that you can be going through those kinds of, of feelings and emotions and experiences and just somehow pretend, oh, well, it's all okay. Uh, To do that's like trying to walk with concrete blocks attached to your legs. You're not going to go very far very fast. And so the healthy response is to indeed acknowledge before God and to yourself and, in fact, with your family and with everybody around you, I have had this major event happen in my life, and it is having a huge effect on me, and I'm going to be real about it. I'm going to be honest about it. And nicely, but very honestly, this isn't about you. It's about me and about the Lord and about my loved ones who are walking through this with me. 
and we're going to do what we need to do to handle it and respond to it. This especially comes into play, for example, in facing first occasions, uh, first birthdays, first Thanksgivings, first Christmases, other such events. Everybody has to do that in the way that works best for them. I don't read in the Bible so-called spiritual ways to handle those kinds of events. And so you really do have to prayerfully seek the best way to do that for yourself, for your family. And sometimes that may not square with other people's expectations or impressions. But you know what? That's okay. And, and do you find, too, that this sense of differences in the way people, as we know, we're all unique, we have special, unique relationships with Christ, the person who passes away, we all have a different relationship with that individual. And so this process of dealing with the pain, the loss, the grief, finding our way into a place of hope, it's different from every, for everybody, isn't it? Well, it is. Uh, you know, Dr. Gary Chapman has written the helpful book on the five love languages. He was very kind to give a word of endorsement for finding hope in times of grief. But just as everybody expresses and receives love differently, uh, I think there is a sense in, in which people express and work through grief differently. For some, uh, they, they withdraw and they think and they write. Others give themselves to intensive physical activity. Some people uh, travel. Uh, some people throw themselves into their work even more. Uh, some people, you know, have very different responses. And all of that's okay as long as it's uh, a way by which a person is honestly seeking to draw near to the Lord in their time of need. Now, obviously, you can't use these things as an escape, and certainly not uh, alcohol or drugs or, or, or other practices as a way of trying to escape the pain. The pain will not be escaped. It is there. Uh, you can't bury a worm. It always finds its way back to the surface. And so you really do have to face it, but there can be tremendous uh, diversity and variety in the way we face it uh, as long as we're being honest with ourselves and before the Lord and seeking God's help and healing. And ultimately, it all does come back to the fact that in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the basis for our confidence, for our hope for the future. There's this enormous misconception about hope in our society. It's many times thought of as kind of like somebody's getting ready to kick a field goal and you close your eyes and you cross your fingers and you, you think positive thoughts and somehow maybe that's going to make the ball go through the uprights. Well, wishful thinking is not hope. Hope is confidence based on the fact that in Jesus Christ we do have victory over the grave and that even though right now can be awful in the moment by moment, ultimately God is with us. He will see it through us, see us through it. And uh, for those who trust in him, uh, our destination for eternity is in the very presence of Almighty God and with those we love who have trusted him. We're looking forward to the day when we see Nathan again. And Glenda, you really have to put your, your trust, don't you, in the Lord in terms of the Lord guiding you, showing you through what the process will be for you as you deal with the loss. You address the grief. You move to that side of hope that, as Preston points out, is different for all of us. No person can say, well, you need to be at this point in your recovery and uh, this kind of progress at this schedule. It really is different for all of us, and only God can really help walk us through that. Am I right? That's exactly right. I think it was about 24 hours after Nathan died. The first, My first response was to collapse on my bathroom floor and just cry out to God, Oh, Jesus, help me. 
my son, my son. And I just resorted to my rocking chair in my bedroom. And I had just screamed out to God, my child, my child. And it was as if God impressed upon my heart, Glenda, he is my child. And I had to quickly um, agree with that because Preston and I had turned all of our children back to the Lord once they were born. And I had, my job as his parent was over. And I just had to come to terms with the fact that he was now with his perfect heavenly father and that brought me hope and we i would see god that way in the most difficult moments and um so that that is the hope that we saw and that's the hope that we know and that's the hope that he will give to anybody that's walking the road of grief let me let me ask you to stay with us for a moment i want to pause on this point when we come back Talk about the challenge of finding strength in this process as you want that moment to break down and cry. You just want to go and have yourself, you know, a nice, good, solid cry. And yet you have to be strong for others because you have a husband, a wife, you have children that are relying upon you. How do you get through that? Find time for yourself, allow yourself to grieve and yet deal with the stuff that has to be dealt with no matter what. A look at finding hope in times of grief. Preston and Glenda Parrish with me tonight. We'll be back with more and some closing thoughts as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. With Preston and Glenda Parrish, a look at finding hope in times of grief. As we mentioned at the onset, loss of loved ones is something that's a natural part of life, and yet we feel as if our very insides have been ripped out. And then there's that process of how do we deal with this? How do we memorialize the loved one? How do we move on? And yet in the process of moving on, always keep part of them with us. Many of those insights detailed inside this book. And I guess the the one thing that we need to be mindful of in this um, uh, precedent, and that is that no individual can really tell us how to grieve or what the process ought to be like, because that is unique for every one of us, is it not? I think that's correct. Grief is not some paint-by-the-numbers exercise. It's different for each person going through it. But what's important is that each person get to the place where in their grief, in their valley, they experience the one who walks through the valley with us, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And that really is possible for people listening right now going through grief. It may have been all they could do today to get up out of bed without throwing up, or maybe they threw up anyway. And they wonder, am I ever going to feel better? Is life ever going to be different again? Is it ever going to be not raining in my world? Well, the answer is that God is with you. He will not forsake you. He will walk with you through your unique personal circumstances. He understands every fear, every tear that you have. He understands every factor in your situation that nobody else knows. And he walks through grief with us individually and will usher us into the confidence, the hope of Christ, if we will just cling to him. Tell me a bit about the process of remaining strong. You both had to deal with this as you've lost a son, Preston, you've lost a father, and yet you've got kids now that are still relying upon you. Um, you're dealing with the grief, the loss, the pain, and yet this aspect that, that you've got to be strong for the kids and life goes on. How do you go about managing all of that? 
Well, in a word, prayer, uh, within minutes after receiving the call about Nathan's death, the day after we buried Daddy, my personal prayer was quite literally and out loud, Lord, you know I'm hurting, you know what I need, but for now I'm just going to leave that with you. Uh, my family needs me right now, and in your time, in your way, I trust you to minister to me in the, all the ways that I need it. But for now, for this moment, in this phone call that needs to be made, in this person that needs to be told, in this decision or matter that needs to be dealt with, please give me the strength, give me the wisdom, give me the perspective to keep putting one foot in front of the other and to do this well for your glory and for my family and thank god he's so faithful uh he really is with us he really does carry us as a shepherd carries a sheep on its shoulders he carries us and he really is meat for the moment he's enough for whatever moments we face and he will help us face those those hard moments even when we just do not have it in us as i did not and then in time uh, he, in his faithfulness and love and mercy and understanding, does indeed come to us as well uh, in our own needs and our own personalities and minister his comfort and peace and healing to us as well. Uh, for me, it really happened weeks and months down the road. Uh, months later, I remember I was sitting on an airplane traveling in conjunction with our ministry, and just out of nowhere, for no explainable reason, tears just began streaming down my face and images of Nathan, our son, began flooding my mind. And uh, it was a little embarrassing sitting there on an airplane just uh, weeping. Uh, I didn't want to make the passengers around me uncomfortable, but at the same time, it was absolutely part of God's healing and therapy for me. I wouldn't have chosen for it to happen in C3C, but that apparently was the right time in God's sight. And I think there was something healing and therapeutic about that moment, as well as many others we've been through. So God does meet our needs. But, you know, a part of maturity is getting beyond what about me, what about me, to, to being able to trust the Lord with our needs and say, okay, but Lord, how do you want me to use me with the others in my life? And how do you want to use me for your glory, and he really will help us to do that if we'll trust him. Absolutely, and I think then, too, the notion that sometimes, like the event that you talked about, is going to happen, and that's okay. I remember one time, for me, when I had lost my grandmother, who practically raised me after my folks were divorced, um, we would oftentimes, if we saw TV programs that we thought the other would enjoy, would pick up the phone and call uh, and say, hey, there's a great show on XYZ Channel. Tune in and watch it. And I remember one Saturday evening, this is probably easily four to six months after she passed away, uh, a show came on TV that I thought she would like, and absentmindedly, I walked to the telephone, dialed the number, and sat there listening to the phone ringing. And after seven or eight rings, I remember looking up at the clock on the kitchen wall and thinking, well, where should, could she be at this time of night on a Saturday evening? Yeah. And it dawned on me. And, of course, I, I, I began to cry. I sat the phone down. For a moment, I felt so terribly foolish that it's almost as if the, the whole events of what had transpired with her hospitalization and her death had just slipped out of my mind for a moment, and I was suddenly back to our old routines again. 
But Craig, that that was a beautiful moment, and and in the book we talk about uh, uh, C.S. Lewis, you know, the well-known story of his marriage to his wife Joy Gresham, and she died of cancer just a few years after they married. But they talked about this pain that we experience when someone we love dies, and and then of course the question naturally comes on the heels of it: Well, why love if it's going to hurt so badly when someone? is taken from us and Lewis and and Gresham had this wonderful response between them the pain now the pain then is part of the pleasure now the the pleasure now is part of the pain then that's the deal we live in a world right now where those two things are inseparably intertwined one day God will wipe away every tear but a moment like you had there in in your experience after your grandmother's death is a beautiful testimony to, to the reality of the love you had with each other and then absolutely with that the pain of not having that one with us anymore and i think too uh, glenda that sense of always having them with you to one degree or another um you know i, I look at things today now uh and i see so much of the influence of her on my life uh, I mean, I, I, I even if it comes to getting behind the stove and cooking an Italian meal, I you know I do certain things now because I know that's the way she did them, and it becomes a part of you. It becomes a part of of your day to day life, and and those things bring back as as Preston suggests those wonderful fond memories that keeps a part of them. I think in a sense alive, at least in your heart. That is really the truth. One of the things that I said to Preston in the first few weeks was it's so hard to believe how intertwined one person can become in every facet of your life, and you don't even realize it until they're gone. And Nathan was 25, so he had not lived at home for quite some time. But I still, after he died, would open drawers and see something he had written or something that he had made. And it would just take me back, just like when you called your grandmother. But one of the things I missed the most about him was his voice. And I didn't cancel his cell phone um, really for a year and a half. And sometimes I would just call it to be able to listen to his voice. And so those things are very difficult. But those are the kinds of things and the places that God will meet you if you ask him. Amen. And, and, and meet you, I might add, in a very significant way. The book, again, called Finding Hope in Times of Grief, newly published by Harvest House and available, again, at Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com. And our thanks again to Preston and Glenda Parrish for being with us tonight. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. somebody's daughter you know i don't think we ever think of the issue of pornography in that fashion typically it's an unknown face without a name 
somebody that doesn't seem to be connected in any level toward reality. And and as a result, the purveyors of this, uh, those who are making huge amounts of money uh, at the distribution, publication and distribution of pornography, really don't think about the impact. And yet it has a significant impact, and not only on the lives of, of those who are consuming the material, but those who are participating in it from an economic standpoint. Steve Siller joins us on the program. He is founder of Music for the Soul and executive producer of uh, part of the song you just heard there a moment ago, uh, highlighted um, Somebody's Daughter. And Steve, thanks so much for taking time to be with us tonight. Craig, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You know, the lyrics to your song certainly bring it home back to a, a level of reality that I suspect uh, most people um, who are trapped in a world of um, consuming a pornography, I don't quite else know how, how to phrase that, uh, don't really ever stop to think about the fact that, you know what, these are, these are real people. These are real lives here. Mm-hmm. Human beings. Uh, whenever I talk to people about this uh, out, out in uh, churches and in schools and the like, I always ask the question, uh, you know, if, if this woman in, in the video were your uh, little sister, would that be okay? If it were your uh, wife or your girlfriend or your mother, how would, how would that be? And, and, and generally you just see heads start to drop around the room as, as people realize that, that these are human beings. And I think the thing that is so alarming is, is the desensitization that has gone on and how we uh, in the church have kind of uh, allowed ourselves to be taken along with that tide rather than opposing it. Yeah, indeed. And, you know, when we think about this, part of the motivation, of course, gets down to a core issue of man's sin nature, uh, our, our uh, fallen condition in which uh, we get pulled into all of this. And not only from the standpoint of consuming it, but then this is big business, isn't it? It's major money here. Oh, it's a billion-dollar industry. Pornography itself worldwide is, is, is above $50 billion. Uh, child pornography is above $3 billion. So there's, there's a ton of money here. And, and, you know, just thinking about sex and how it sells, there was something on, on Tuesday morning on Good Morning America that, for me, pointed out where we are, what time of the day it is on this. It's 11.59. Uh, the new uh, Britney Spears album, has just come out and they did a 15 minute piece celebrating her career and this is at nine o'clock in the morning and they are showing videos of her songs that basically feature groups of half-naked young people riding all over one another and the entire piece is just a tribute to her there is n- there is not one word as to you know whether or not this is a good thing <laughs> Uh, and and I think you know I, I doubt very seriously that the that the ABC switchboard was swamped with uh, disapproving phone calls, and that's what I mean when I say we've kind of gone along with it. Uh, the kind of wholesale uh, softcore pornography that you see in any mall, that you see uh, you know uh, the the Washington Redskins football 
uh, calendar had a cheerleader on the cover th- that was topless. She had her arms positioned, uh, you know, in a way to hide it a little bit. But basically, this is the kind of stuff that's going on, and we participate in the culture. We go, we shop at the mall. We you know we watch the television shows, and we don't realize that by by going along with this, we are help creating a climate where our young people are are learning a a model for intimacy that is not going to serve them at all. We've become terribly desensitized to all of this, haven't we? I mean, uh, down through the years, as society and culture have changed, and I, I would suspect in a significant fashion since the advent of the Internet uh, that brings oh, yeah. all of this into your home at the touch of a finger, oftentimes whether you want it or not, uh, well, yeah, that, that, that yeah. maybe, maybe a lot of people... Good, decent people, uh, people that recognize that, that there is damage and injury that's suffered mm-hmm. here uh, when you engage in this kind of behavior on both ends of the perspective, um, have finally maybe just kind of, what, thrown in the towel, Steve, and figured, you know what, this thing has become so big, so out of control, so behemoth, that it's hardly worth not even fighting anymore because it seems as if you're fighting a losing battle. Well, I've actually heard some Christians say that, and it, and it really breaks my heart, because my feeling is you, you wouldn't let your children go out and play in the front yard without teaching them to hold hands and, and look both ways before they cross the street. And yet, day after day after day, we equip our, our young people with devices that access this material, and not even just access it, that, that allow them to create their own uh, material. I mean, that's happening as well now. And we are, you know, we are not equipping our young people to, to deal with the culture they're growing up in. Uh, and and I, I really want to make the point that, that pornography is not about sex. Pornography is about, uh, it's a fantasy experience. You, you know, you, you, you cut off the, the power and the screen goes blank. Uh, this is about using a fantasy experience and and using people because you're taking something from those people in in the uh, in the video or the magazine or whatever you're taking something from from them without giving anything back and i think that's what's so dangerous about it it, it creates a false model of intimacy and what's even scarier is that there is new brain science that shows that pornography is actually rewiring and brain mapping uh, you know, traditional intimacy right out of our kids. Well, and I'm wondering if at that level, Steve, we're not watching a major paradigm shift taking place in society uh, overall. I mean, we've seen great celebratory comments related to things like uh, Facebook and its role in in such matters as the toppling of uh, Mubarak in Egypt and the notion that with the Internet and social media, you know, even as much as a, a horrible... Uh, dictatorship would try to clamp down on information getting around to people or out of a, of a given country, uh, that this has sort of been the feather pillow from which you'll never stuff all the feathers back into again. So right. as much as is being celebrated, it's helping people get connected and stay together. My goodness, here on Facebook, I ran across a buddy from high school from 50 years ago. How wonderful mm-hmm. that is. And yet mm-hmm. it's creating, I would suspect, this sense of, of not just false intimacy, but these walls where all of a sudden now levels at which in normative relationships in historically normal relationships uh it it just it's it's shifted the terms of engagement 
It, it has, and, and, and Facebook and, and the Internet and all the technologies, of themselves, they're not evil. It, it is always a matter of how we're going to use those technologies. And you're right, those technologies can be used for good. And, and I mean, here we are talking on the radio and, and sharing this message. So, you know, I, I don't encourage people to be... Uh, to be down on technology, I, I encourage responsible use of technology. And just for a moment, I feel like I didn't really address your question about uh, you know, the, the people who feel hopeless about this. I mean, I always come back to God's mercies being new every morning. He's given us another day. He's given us new children being born into the world. Obviously, if he's given us a new day and new life, then there is hope and there is a chance and 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 responsible people people who are moral not just christian people people uh, of all uh, faiths and backgrounds who are moral have a responsibility to step up and protect our kids the the truth of the matter is a hundred percent of our kids are going to see pornography before they graduate from high school in this culture so you know people are always asking me what the statistics are at this point i think you can throw them all out the window you're right the feathers are out of the pillow this is the world we live in our only choice now is how will we respond to it how will we mentor our kids how will we get healthy how will we shine the light of truth in the church on this issue Let's pause on that point. When we come back, let's see if we can't touch on some of the answers to those critical questions. I mean, all right, if we recognize the fact, as you point out, um, our kids are going to be exposed to this. There are those listening right now, housewives, and, you know, folks, I never went looking for this. And I went to this website looking for a recipe, and all of a sudden, we all know what the spam does and so forth. How do you go about equipping your kids to understand what this is and, and countering what what appears to be some very mixed messages. I mean, mom and dad and the church are all saying that this is not good, not healthy, um, is going to be potentially ruinous to your ability to carry on a healthy, proper relationship. And yet, if it's so bad, why is it so prevalent? We'll answer that question as well. Steve Siller, my guest, founder of Music for the Soul, executive producer of Somebody's Daughter. We're talking today about um, a recent uh, Harvard Crimson article on pornographic pornography uh, and the question of ethics and uh, how addiction to pornography can be so ruinous to so many aspects of normal living. Back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. conversation with Steve Siller, who is, by the way, the executive producer of the uh, highlight of the tune you just heard a moment ago, Somebody's Daughter. We're talking about the impact of pornography and the challenges that we face in trying to bring balance to this topic. I mean, it was challenging 30, 40, 50 years ago with the advent of, of, of certain publications out there, you know, the, the Hugh Hefners of the world, uh, uh, Larry Flint's and those. Uh, now, with the advent of 
the World Wide Web, it's impossible to control it. And as Steve points out, parents face the fact your children, like it or not, will be exposed to pornography. The question is, how will they react to it? Will they see it? Will they balance biblical perspective? And toward that end, is is it problematic and challenging, particularly for young people, Steve, because as much as parents in the church and those in the know are trying to warn kids about the impact of all of this, that it's not just something that's, that's ooh, nasty, but it can create false intimacy that later on can damage uh, the ability to carry on a normal relationship with a spouse. But, but then, too, that notion that we're trying to combat something here with so many mixed messages in the general public that I would imagine a lot of teenagers look at this and say, well, wait a minute, you know, if it's so bad and so terrible, how come it's so pervasive? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that I think we have to do, and as Christian parents, as, as parents in general, it's it's not easy. Because, I mean, you know, we've all heard about the talk, right, ever since we oh, were yes, kids. the talk. The, the point is, I think one of the first things we can do for our kids, you know, we always tell our kids at church the truth will set them free. Uh, then we don't tell about the truth that they're living through. And I think what we need to say to them is, look, it's natural to have curiosity about sex. God created sex. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It is exciting. But you want to experience it in the proper context and with a proper understanding of its power. So toward that end, let me share with you why pornography is not the proper way to experience sex. I, I th- I, but I think that starting point is admitting, yeah, this is exciting. This is this this gets you worked up, and and I think I know kids hate to be manipulated. Whenever I talk to high school kids and even college kids, I always tell them, don't you realize the pornographers are manipulating your natural hormones to their financial advantage? They don't care about you. They don't care whether this is going to ruin your ability to have intimacy. They don't care whether it's going to mess up your relationship with your girlfriend. They don't care about any of that. They just want to get you hooked when you're young so they'll have a customer for life. And I think when kids realize that, they can get a little angry, and that's when I think they have a chance against this stuff. When they value themselves enough to say, you know what, I'm not going to be tricked into spending, you know, ruining my intimacy and spending my worth and my value uh, throwing it away on this stuff. The talk. How, how soon should we begin the talk? How how educated do parents need to get ahead of it? You know, and I know that sounds like an odd question. It's like, I'm your parent. Of course I understand how the birds and the bees work. If I didn't, you wouldn't be here. Well, but yet know. it's changed so drastically. Steve, even from when I was a kid, and I'm, I'm, sure. I'm, 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 you know, I'm certainly no kid, but I'm no fossil either. It's changed so dramatically to try to be able to understand and relate to these kids as they're dealing with a barrage of not just the Internet, but now cell phones and texting and sexting and all this, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think, yes, parents have to, have to be educated. In fact, uh, there's a number of things I want to say about this. Uh, I, I have a, a, something I've created called the Things You Can Do list, and I want to make sure everybody knows how to get it because it's free. It's at our website. One of the things that I encourage uh, parents to do is get educated, and I encourage churches to have ongoing parental era education in this area because the technology that was the coolest six months ago 
You know how that goes. It's out of date already. I mean, kids are able to access this stuff through ways that most parents don't even realize, like through a Wii. You know, I mean, they're, they're, it's crazy what, what the technology can do. And our kids fly this stuff like jet planes because they've been on the technology since they were little. Whereas, you know, folks like us, I mean, we've come to it later in life. So we, we don't even really understand how quickly uh, and how pervasively this stuff can move around. So, yes, education is important. But I think as, as far as having the talk early, uh, you know, we, we, we have to understand kids are seeing this stuff. The average age of exposure now to, to pornography, I've heard as low as eight, the oldest age I've heard in the last year is 11 on average. Uh, you know, I wish we could afford to wait uh, till later because, you know, we all hate this idea of, of ruining our kids' innocence. But, you know, a dear friend of mine, his, his, his six-year-old was doing a little homework assignment and came across something hardcore. So, uh, you know, and I've heard that story more than once. So I just really, you know, want to encourage people. That, obviously, you need to do things age appropriately. But I want to encourage people not to shy away from beginning to have these discussions in a way that will give their kids some guardrails. And as far as technology goes, I mean, parents need to understand, you know, you need to have all kinds of, of Internet accountability, Internet filter software on all your computers, uh, the, you know, the blocking software. You need to have it on your phones. You need to have it on your televisions. You need to have every computer in the house and pass through rooms. My son is 17. He still doesn't have a computer or a TV in his room, and he feels Amish. That's too bad. <laughs> Uh, you know, that's just too bad. You know, that says our kids are going to go out into the world. you got to know your parents' friends. you got to talk about this stuff. It isn't any fun. Like you said, I wish it wasn't true, but it is. got to talk about this stuff because we can't – I put it this way. We, the church wants to be a light in the world. We can't be a light in the world till we mentor our own kids. We can't mentor our own kids until we admit that, that as adults we struggle with it. We need to come clean and get healthy, and we can't do any of that until we just start talking about it. So, to, so for me, somebody's daughter is that light switch that can be turned on in a church. Start the conversation. And once you do that, there's all sorts of things you can do. Some good insights from Steve Siller, again, executive producer of Somebody's Daughter. Steve, finally, if folks uh, touched by this song would like to get a copy of it, is it available through iTunes or how? Uh, the DVD's on iTunes. The DVD CD set is at our website. They can go to somebodysdaughter.org. Or, and they can also, to get the three things you can do list, they can go to musicforthesoul.org. On the home page, click on pornography, and it'll take you to a page with all sorts of free resources. And I really encourage them to get the things you can do list from our page, print it out, take it to their church, read through it, and find some things that you can begin to do, things you can do personally, things you can do in your family, in your church, and in your community at large to make a difference. Because if we all get involved and start taking a piece of this, we can turn this tide. I really believe we can. Indeed so. Steve Siller, thanks so much for the time. And again, on the web, somebodysdaughter.org or musicforthesoul.org. 
Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.